You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, this is Chris, and I'm just going to jump in here before we get rolling just to give you a quick update. Uh, This week, I am actually in New Zealand. I'm actually staring at downtown Auckland at night. It's beautiful here, even though it's a bit chilly in the winter of New Zealand, and Angie's actually traveling back to Michigan. So we talked about how to cover this week, and we decided to go ahead and release our very first Patreon episode that we did on Cheetah. We thought by releasing Cheetah, we could actually show you the quality of episodes that we're releasing out on Patreon. We we also have the Great White episode, and next week we'll be recording our third Patreon-only episode that, uh, again, is for our Patreon subscribers. We, we appreciate the support of the podcast, and we really want to keep doing special episodes each month uh, to include once a month uh, going through Conservation News. So thank you to our Patreon subscribers, but for the general listenership, we just wanted to give you a taste of the quality of episodes that that you can get. And this was a really fun one to do too on the Cheetah. The second thing is we're releasing an interview this Thursday with Ivan Carter, and it's discussing the Lion 24 project that was a fascinating project that was organized to relocate 24 lions from South Africa to Mozambique. Ivan Carter goes through the the process of how they relocated these lions. This was the largest lion relocation uh, ever attempted and kind of gives us an update on how the lions are doing. With that being said, it, it is a tad controversial because this park in Mozambique that he talks about is being supported by trophy hunting. And he kind of discusses some of the pros of trophy hunting and what goes into protecting these animals in this large, large park in Mozambique. So it's a bit controversial for some of our listeners. And I just want you to to listen to it with an open mind. I I guarantee you this is a topic that we're going to revisit uh, soon again. Uh, a year ago with Corbin Maxey, Angie, and myself, we had a roundtable discussion about trophy hunting, the pros or the cons, and we kind of decided that there wasn't very many pros, but Ivan actually raises some questions that made me kind of look hard at this question of trophy hunting and, and its viability in conservation. 
And also looking at the IUCN that actually supports trophy hunting in certain circumstances. And, and I would say this is one of those circumstances where it actually benefits wildlife. So it's it's a topic Angie and I have, have wrestled with the last couple months. Again, setting up this interview and conducting this interview. And it's a topic that we're going to revisit. I promise you we're going to revisit this. We may have Ivan on again to discuss the uh, the pros of trophy hunting. But... It's a fascinating interview, and I highly, highly recommend you listen to it. And please give us feedback on you know, Facebook, Instagram. Listen to the interview and give us your opinions because we really care about what you think and how we can go out and chase down some of these interviews to, to bring light, you know, the, the struggle that so many animals are, are facing around the planet. So anyways, you know, this is the intro for Cheetah. So enjoy this episode and, and look for that interview on Thursday with Ivan Carter on the Lion 24 Relocation Project. And I will be back in the States next week. Angie uh, is still traveling around, but uh, we will have a new species for you uh, coming then. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. So the cheetah, Angie, this one, it's, it's a big cat, but I wasn't just sure where it fit in, which is interesting, I found out. What can they teach us? Issues with their low genetic diversity, as far as health issues, uh, but that's where scientists and researchers, conservationists, Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast Patreon Special Edition, Angie. Our first one. This is so exciting. So for our Patreon subscribers, we, can, we cannot thank you enough. Angie and I have been brainstorming on this for, for quite a while, and we really just wanted to get established, and now we are. Angie, we're one of the top podcasts in iTunes and natural sciences. Yes, I was looking last night and my uh, lower jaw, my mandible almost hit the floor <laughs> when, when I was just playing around on iTunes, just seeing what else was out there. Because I was, in order to, for us to get better, I like to listen to other podcasts to see what I like about them, what I think they can improve upon. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it helps keep us on our, our A game or at least Mm -hmm. B minus game, depending on how tired no, I am at nighttime. A plus, <laughs> A plus. You're you're better but, when you're tired because I love the mistakes. <laughs> man, but so, anyways, I got and you know, we're under the natural science uh, section, but playing around with that, I clicked on a thing that said see our top natural science podcast, and so I'm looking because I'm like, yeah, this is who I want to be. I want to be just like mm -hmm. uh, Neil. Yeah. What's Neil? DeGrasse Tyson. Yeah. yeah. Star something. Space talk. Mm -hmm. uh, star yeah. talk. Yeah. And so, but I, now it was not the top row or the next row or the third row or the fourth <laughs> row, but I think it's somewhere around the fifth or sixth row. Okay. And we're only talking yes. about like five or six podcasts across. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. All Creatures Podcast, our amazing logo that uh, you and I designed a while ago. And it's mm -hmm. there. And I, I did a double take. Yeah. And so, <laughs> but just so our listeners cause can get a kick out of this. Yeah. I, the first thing I did is I, of course, messaged Chris and I was like, check your computer. See if my computer just knows me. <laughs> is this real? Did, are we up there yeah. in the top? You know, whatever. 
fifteen percent of natural science podcasts. Yeah. Are we the? And then we were kind of one of the only animal ones too. So, and right. and of course you checked right. it, and it wasn't just my computer trying to be yeah. nice to me. <laughs> it was real. No, I checked it on Julie's. I checked it on Julie's, and, and her computer showed it. Yeah, <laughs> so it wasn't my computer; it was Julie's. So yeah, she uh, it was on there. But yeah, it was it was amazing. We are picking up so much steam, Angie. It's we're going to build this movement. We are building this movement, and we're going to make a difference in the world. That's what we set out to do, and we're getting there. And the listeners are, are helping us. So especially our Patreon subscribers. Thank you, because this is allowing Angie and I to do more things and reach out to more people. We're reaching out to major organizations around the world to fight for these animals. Now, this episode is only for our Patreon subscribers. Since this is our first one, we may release this in a couple months to the general public just to give them a taste on what Patreon is. But each month, we're going to pick a, a top species and cover it just for you. So, you know, we want to give back to, to the people that are given to us. Additionally, Angie and I are going to do conservation news once a month. And it's just for you for Patreon subscribers, period. We'll never release that to the public. So, so that's just for you. In Patreon, we're going to start doing polls so you can vote on the species we're going to cover next. This is a big one. And this is, Angie, this is your idea. And I think it's uh, brilliant. Let's see, which, which one? I, I have about four or five of them this week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. You do. You do. But Angie said, I want to give back to conservation organizations. So she... Yes, this was my... Since our inception two years ago, when I sat down across the table from you back when we used to record in your house together, and uh, we were in the same city and same state, right? The good old days. uh, That was my number one. Yeah, I remember if, if we ever were ever to raise any money, I want a huge chunk of it to go to a conservation organization. And that's, but then of course you, that's why we're such good partners. You helped me further develop that idea into saying, well, why should we pick it? Why not let our Patreons vote for it? And, and we could do, and doing it on a rotating, we don't have to pick just one organization as we've Mm -hmm. covered several 10, 20, Mm -hmm. 30, 40 in the past two years of amazing, amazing organizations. And then of course there's ones out there we don't even know about that our listeners, of course, I'm sure know about. So, yeah, you guys pick. Right. And uh, I, I yeah. think, did we decide yeah. if we were going to do it m- monthly or? Monthly. Monthly. Yeah. So, what we're going to do is 25% of any funds we raise is going to go to a conservation organization of the month. We're going to post it up on a poll. So, we cover generally three to four species a month. We're going to, we're going to, now that we're, we're picking up steam, we're going to stick to four species a month. That means there's four organizations. We want you to vote on who gets the money each month, and then we will cut a check and mail it. So like we just covered World Wildlife Fund, the organization that Angie's covering uh, this episode, um, you know, there's a bunch of them out there that that we've covered, and we want to keep that rotation going throughout so we can give back. And that's very important to us. So the cheetah, Angie, this one, it's, it's a big cat, but I wasn't just sure where it fit in, which is interesting. I found out where yes. it fits in perfectly. And you and I always talk about this conservation organization and the one we worked in in Florida. And I think since this is paywalled and we're working with them now, working on some collaboration with them, but White Oak in Florida so White Oak is a special place for Angie and I. Angie is the one at the beginning of this, this journey 10 years ago told me I had to go. And I was like, okay, cool, I'll go. 
And then I went on a tour with Angie and I just like was like in love. And that changed my life forever because now here we are a decade later doing this and speaking well, yeah, out. Yeah, they're a very wildlife. inspirational facility as far as uh, the endangered species that they work towards rescuing from extinction and uh, and a lot of the research that they do there. It's just it's an incredible facility and it's not even open to the public. So that's, I mean, unless you go behind the scenes yeah. or get a, a specialty tour or something, they are, uh, and it's just acres upon, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of acres. I don't even know. I'm not good with that kind of space spatial distance thing but it's just incredible and there's some of the in some of the conservation they work they do for certain species like the cheetah and the jaranook and okapi i mean it's it's hard to mem- no other places do it the way they do it um are as successful no, no. so yeah no they're the yeah they're the number one cheetah breeder in the world and so that's why i'm bringing them up because i remember that very first tour and then subsequent times that we went and did some research there and worked with them driving by the cheetah pens and seeing those mom and cubs was just, Oh my God, that was, that was the highlight. You would see a mom, uh, you know, the mother cheetah and she had like six or seven cubs uh, around her with that spiky hair. And it's just, they were so precious. The cubs are darling. So precious. The cubs are just darling. Yes. Oh, yes. And I, and yeah. it's so funny, Chris, uh, preparing for cheetahs this past week, I am, everybody knows I'm a hoof and horn girl, ungulate lady, herbivore. Mm. And of course I, I appreciate and love any animal with, you know, scales, feathers, or fur in general. But my husband, John, he's the cat guy. He's the big cat guy. He's worked with them before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's just for me as a keeper, I worked with a ton of species, but never any of the big cats. And I, I must say, I, if you talk about internal desires, I, I didn't necessarily have it probably because I could live vicariously through him and his work each day. But I just was like, no, I, it's just not, I don't think I need to work with a tiger in my lifetime to have that fulfillment. Uh, but after preparing for this cheetah podcast, I, I, I stand corrected. I feel like I missed out in my life by not being a cheetah keeper period. Yeah. <laughs> because I feel like they're kind of like they dog amazing. cats. They're a good blend of. Yes. I don't know. They're, of course, they're a big cat uh, and and they're in the Felid family. But I don't know. There's something about them. And I read, you know, I went really deep into the woods with a lot of their behavior. Uh, mm. We won't even have time to get mm-hmm. to it on the podcast. We can maybe put some link on the show notes because I was so fascinated by just their, their behavior. They're like a cat, but they're super cool. And then, of course, from a physiologist's point of view, which that's what I've realized, that took me like 40 years to realize, what what are you? Do you want to be, what do you want to be with your life? I realize I'm yeah. 100% a physiologist. Anything physiology just is where I want to, in animal physiology, of course, is what I want to learn more about and mm-hmm, what I love. Mm-hmm. And so the, the physiology of this fastest land mammal uh, is just incredible. It's, oh, I can't wait to get into it. I can't wait to get into it. So Angie, it's interesting you're talking about speed because I was curious, you know, everybody says cheetahs are the fastest animal in the world. I wanted to check if that was true. I'm a fact checker, obviously. So don't answer because I'm sure you you probably know, but are cheetahs the fastest animal on earth? So not just land, but talking about sea and air. Okay. 
So it was, it, it, it's pretty surprising. It, it, and where the cheetah st- stands, if they're number one or if they're number 10, we don't know. We'll find out. I end. will definitely stay tuned the whole episode. <laughs> I'll <Yeah>. be here. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. So, you know, describing cheetahs, I th- you know, again, most people know these charismatic animals are. They're not quite the large cat, but they're not small either. And they're about the size of a leopard, right? Yeah. I mean, about 125 pounds. So that's my post-baby dream weight. <laughs> <laughs> not mine. <laughs> God, that would be, I'd be nothing but a skeleton. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> so, but yeah, no, no, they're, they're definitely a, a lot lighter in weight and then also just in their build, which is part of one of their secrets to their aerodynamic speed, right? So uh, definitely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. small, uh, much, much lighter than what a lion's going to be, 400 pounds more or less, give or take. So, yeah. Siberian tiger, 700 pounds. Yeah, much lighter. Yeah. Yeah, and they're long, slender bodies. I mean, they're built for speed. They've got these really long legs with semi-retractable claws. Yes, we'll talk about that when cool. we get to the speed. Yes, yeah. I learned some fun facts yeah. that I can yep. relate to uh, buying my son soccer cleats. So that's stay tuned for that. Yeah, <laughs> like cheetah. So golden yellow or tan coats, the black spots. Yes, right? definitely about. So. Yes, Chris, and somewhere somebody said about 2,000 blacks. Spots. I don't. Yes. I feel like I yes. have to fact check that, but we'll go with we'll go with that for now. Let me start counting. <laughs> One, two, three. No, no. It would take. <laughs> this is all we do for the Patreon, right? We'll just count spots on on how many spots are on a cheetah. So yeah, two thousand. That's a lot. And then they they have that white belly underneath. What I loved, Angie. I didn't really realize this. They have black rings around their tails. It's just something you didn't think about. You know, you saw them spots. But they yes, got a ring definitely. tail. Very, it's very unique, I would say, as far as to have spots and almost rings or stripes too, right? More or less. Right, right. And then what I think what cheetahs make cheetahs so adorable too is just like those black teardrops coming down from their eyes around their muzzles. Yeah, Chris. They call it the black lacrimal because I guess lacrima is for right. eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's this thin, narrow stripe that goes from their tear ducts all the way down, outlines the side of their nose, mm-hmm. and then down towards their mouth. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. They're beautiful cats. They're so beautiful. Yeah, it really makes them, um, like, obviously I'm not an artist. I don't paint. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I didn't inherit that uh, gene from my, from my late grandmother, Sarah. But if I did, they'd be a fun one to paint because they're, or maybe I should, maybe it'd be a good one to start with because they do have such this iconic character. The, the characteristics of their face mm-hmm. are very clear and dynamic right right uh, especially with those black lines that run down from their eyes and then they got these cute little tiny ears <laughs> yep yeah 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 yep. and their ears are small and rounded and they have of course a little lighter color inner fur on them to contrast the posterior side which has a black patch um within the main dorsal color of the individual so just really cute just oh, that. And, you know, their heads sit higher on their bodies, you know, like mm-hmm. kind of they can telescope around, you know, especially in tall grass to look for prey. So about 80 inches long from nose to tail or two meters, which is more than me. I'm 77. So that's six feet, eight inches for them. I'm six five. So I'm 77. Uh, they weigh, you know, like you said, you know, 70 kilograms or less stand about 32 inches at the shoulder, or 80 centimeters. So not small. No, but definitely not, not small. No, no, but not uh, Siberian tiger size. 
No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Which would be scary because they're so fast. I know. Well, I don't think they could, I don't think they could be that fast if they were that size. And that's no. what we'll talk about when we get to the physiology of their speed section. Now, Angie, looking at their range, it makes me a little bit sad. And, um, and and again, we always try to bring the good news here to this podcast. But when I look at their historical range and then I see where they are today, it really makes my heart sad because they ranged from India all the way through the Middle East. So Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, down into Africa. The only places they really didn't range is parts of Central Africa, probably really dense, dense jungle you know, or Western Africa because they can't run, you know, through dense, dense jungle. And then you look at their, their population today and you look at where they're at today and it's just, it's horrific. It's really bad. Yeah. It's uh, the IUCN always does a nice graphic of the historic range and in one color and then in another shade of that color, they'll do the mm-hmm. current distribution. And, and this one socked me in the gut more than most. I, I agree. It was just really, um, yeah, it was just, it's just really sad. And, and when we get to their behavior, a lot of it's going to make sense because they do have a very large territory. When I get to behavior, some of it'll start to make more sense because they do require a large area to hunt and be a cheetah. So, and we all know, of course, with our ever-growing human population and, uh, habitat loss and things like that, that are, inevitable for the most part as the human population grows and we need to feed more people and house more people and have roads places. I mean, it makes sense. It's just, uh, and overall the cheetah is considered vulnerable by the IUCN. However, several subspecies are critically endangered. And like you said, they live Mm -hmm. in very, very small pockets in either Africa or in, um, Iran actually. Iran. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And so, and yeah, I mean, it's really only been in the last 40 years that the range has shrunk down so much. And in the past 100 years, we've lost 90% of the world population of cheetahs. 90%. So sad. And so it is just crazy that it's as bad as it is. And their numbers still continue to decrease overall. And yeah, it's and we're going to talk about there's there's lots of reasons why uh, for such a big cat, for such an iconic cat, why their numbers continue to struggle uh, due to their low fertility rates and then high mortality rates when they are born, low genetic diversity, things like that. We're really going to dive into in this podcast. Uh, so stick with us and you're going to want to fight for them. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the heroes that are fighting for them. And then you can also be a cheetah hero yourself Mm -hmm. and let people know that, yes, although when you do go to a wildlife park or your local accredited zoological institute, you probably have seen a cheetah, but which is great because they're so beautiful. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, just, I want to look at them all day long and that's why (laughs) the behavior section is going to be super long, but their numbers are really dwindling in the wild and we've just we've just knocked them out in the past 100 years and it's time to make a change now we know this we have this information yes we have several groups that have partnered together and uh several different countries and now chris is the time to take action we have a lot of researchers conservationists zoological partners that understand this plight and are learning more and more about it every year and currently, the cheetah exists in less than 20 countries on the African continent. 
Mm-hmm. So in these little pockets here and there, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to subspecies. But we've reduced their range significantly, but it's not too late for the cheetah because mm-hmm. we know nope. what they need and we're learning more about what they need to survive and thrive in the wild. We just got to get there. And there's lots of people right. fighting the fight, including obviously our listeners. So it's going to be a fun pod today for sure. We're going to we're going to bring the hopeful moments. And if you're not yeah, a cheetah yeah, no, fan, like yeah. I said, I was I guess I would say I was average. I was an average cheetah fan. Now I am mm-hmm. a huge cheetah fan, Chris. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, they're amazing. I'm going to go be a cheetah keeper when I they're retire amazing. for sure. Like they are awesome. <laughs> well, it, and you mentioned the range and the pockets they're in. They IUCN is about to reclassify them as endangered if trends continue. Okay. So they're creeping as a, as a as a species overall. They're creeping towards being endangered. And then if things drastically do not improve, they'll be critically endangered and then they'll be extinct. So they have a lot of pressures. One of the things, Angie, you know, we can jump into why I care about cheetahs. I mean, another predator species in peril. They have very low genetic diversity. Now, I used to think that was because of us. I thought it was because of poaching and driving the range. It actually dates back much further than that. That the reason cheetahs have such low genetic diversity is during the last ice age, there was this huge die-off of megafauna. Mammoths went away. Saber-toothed cats went away. All those things went away. Cheetahs almost went away. And so they were down to a critically low population, somehow survived. And so for the last 12,000 years, they have come back in numbers. Now they're back down low again. But, you know, things we see with cheetahs today, poor sperm quality, they're they're having some you know, susceptibility to infectious disease. You see kink tails. There's all these genetic problems that they still have. And this has been going on for thousands of years. Why I care about this, Angie, not just for the cheetah, but think about all the species we've covered in the last two years. And we talk about losing genetic diversity, northern elephant seals down to 100, Vaquita, who's going extinct, but they're down to 10 to 20. You know, we talked about Brzezwalski horses. We know they have trouble. They were down to 12. So this species is, is teaching us what's going to ha- That's why I think they're so important to study and understand that even though they, they're here and they're a few thousand now, their low genetic diversity, this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. So these species in peril now get down to these criti- critical low numbers. Cat ball langer, you just tagged me on a post with them. They're up to 60. Now we can see what it's going to look like long-term. Yeah, the species can survive, but even after 12,000 years, they still have this low genetic diversity, which is what we're fighting to prevent, right? AZA, SSPs, all these things. Right, exactly. And that's you bring up such a good and critical point as far as why to care about them. I mean, there's a bazillion reasons. Uh, The fastest land mammal. I mean, my gosh, they, and we'll talk about their, maybe, 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 maybe. Maybe they are. They accelerate faster than the Corvette my dad used to own, for goodness sakes. I mean, it's just insane. And so, but yeah. And the other thing that's fascinating about cheetahs and, and you touched on it with their first uh, global die off 12,000 years ago. But even crazier, you know how cats have nine lives, right? 
Mm-hmm. The cheetah actually survived a huge uh, reduction in their genetic diversity a hundred thousand years ago. First. Oh wow! I didn't see that one. Okay. Yeah. No. No. Well, it's only recently come out as far okay. looking at their DNA and understanding wow. how they're all interrelated. All that mm-hmm. crazy science. It's a little bit above my head, but you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I try to read these papers and educate yeah. myself here and there a little bit, yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah, at this time, 100,000 years ago, the big cats lived alongside the puma in what's obviously mm-hmm. now North America mm-hmm. before migrating across the Bering Strait into Asia and then Africa where they live today. And researchers believe that this journey was punctuated by a regular population reductions and limited their gene flow mm-hmm. as they projected in these other territories. So... The cheetahs then, to get over into Asia and Africa, had to resort to some inbreeding to survive. Mm. So that was the first time it happened, 100,000 oh, years wow. ago. Okay. I don't think it was this. It wasn't as severe as the one 12,000 years ago, right? During the, the ice age, age the one right. that first met. Yeah. That was just like global collapse of the population. Right. But yeah, so I mean, that's why I'm hopeful. These critters, like you said, as far as the study as a model of survival... Mm-hmm. These cats are fight have fought tooth and nail two major extinction vi- events that we know of that researchers can talk about and understand. Come on, guys, let's not, let's let's not be their third for goodness sakes. Like, what yeah. are we? I mean, right. like, come on, you know, let's get it together. And there's like I said, we're going to mention the groups that are doing amazing work for them and help helping uh, helping them survive this reduction in their population and. Potentially thrive, but I, thrive, but I believe that we can do it. They did it a hundred thousand years ago. They did it twelve thousand years ago. And yes, they do have some issues with their low genetic diversity as far as health issues. Uh, but that's where scientists and researchers, conservationists, working together, teamwork mm. through multiple different agencies can come together and help work through that. So. Right. hopefully yeah so i have my fingers crossed they're like i said they're my new favorite big cat for sure no they're amazing they're amazing and and beautiful and it's a good kind of a good lead in a little bit into evolution you know we've covered this in tigers lions not bears oh my but uh we did leopards soon soon soon, very soon so the evolution you know begins with all these carnivores 62 million years ago that's the myocids we've talked about that that's what's given given rise to all of today's carnivores. Now, the cat family tree, cheetahs do not belong in Panthera, which is our big cats, our lions, tigers, right. snow leopards, uh-huh. leopards, and jaguars, right? They right. belong more in the puma. You already talked about that part See, of the tree. See, it all makes sense now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So their closest relatives, cheetahs, are the cougars or pumas. And then the jaguarundi was one. Then if you if you kind of branch out that tree, you go to the felis. So you have the black-footed cat, sand cat, domestic cat. They're more related to. Then the lynxes and bobcats. So it's, it's, a, it's been a while uh, to trace back that tree to where they even come close to panthera, the other big cats. So that's why mm-hmm. cheetahs are, have evolved to be so unique. So unique. That's what I couldn't get over with their physiology. Why I had so much fun the past couple of days. Right, right. Compared to other big cats. 
Cheetahs are the only gen- member of the genus Asinonyx. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. <laughs> I give you so much kudos for even trying, Chris. I couldn't do it to save my life. Every time. Every time. I'm like, uh. <laughs> But, you know, like Angie said, they evolved in the Americas. And that's the current thought. Now, they have found a, a fossil in China. So maybe there's some debate. Again, here we go. Research, blah, blah, blah. But the current thought, the current belief is that cheetahs definitely evolved in the Americas date backs eight and a half million years ago. And that's even before Panthera emerged, which we talked about wow. you know, a few podcasts ago, yeah. about four million years ago. Yeah. Then migrated across the land, but land bridge. Now, today's modern cheetahs, they believe, emerged about 200,000 years ago. Okay. Now, there's four subspecies of cheetah. So you have the Asinonyx jubatus is the species name. And here's the four recognized subspecies. So you have the Southeast African cheetah. So you're looking South and East Africa, South, South Africa, Botswana, all of those regions that you were fortunate enough to, Namibia. Yeah, to go. Yeah, go. I also... Isn't it called an Namibia cheetah as well? Yeah, Kim, one of the, the subspecies names. Now, there's Northeast Africa cheetah, which is Sudan, Ethiopia, Etria. There's the Northwest African cheetah, Algeria, Niger, Burkina Faso. Then you have this Asiatic cheetah, the one in Iran, which we're going to talk a little bit about because they're mm-hmm. so critically endangered. So they had that, that Asiatic cheetah was, you're talking from the Red Sea all the way throughout India. Now you have a small population barely hanging on uh, in the parts of Iran. Of like 100 individuals? Yeah, yeah. Right? so pretty small population. And the numbers, correct me if I'm wrong, that I got for the different subspecies mm-hmm. was about 4,200 for the South African cheetah, 100 like we mentioned for the Asiatic cheetah. You're right. And then the North Central and Western Africa, less than 500. And then the Asi- Asiatic cheetah were less than 100. Right. There, there could be just 50 of them left. Yeah. Now, I did find the largest cheetah-like species. And the reason I bring it up is because they run so fast, right? <laughs> so, you know, if you saw this, I still think, I don't, what's the one animal besides the elephant bird that blew us away? There was the um, the bear cat thing that was like the size bigger than a horse. <laughs> it's just oh, yeah. it's huge. It's like a big cow with claws and teeth. So the largest cheetah species, they found a fossil that dates back about 2 million years to the Republic of Georgia in Central Asia. And this is what they consider the largest cheetah ever to live and pretty stout. It weighed about 220 pounds or 110 kilograms. And yeah, it's about the double the weight of a, a normal cheetah today. So pretty big and they could run super fast. So that's a that's a big, mm-hmm. big kitty. Yeah. It's a big kitty. It's a big kitty. <laughs> now, like all predators, Angie, cheetahs only live to be 8 to 10 in the wild, 12 to 15 under human care. Now, we're still determining if they're the fastest animal on Earth, but they are super fast. You said they, they can run up to 70 miles per hour or 112 kilometers per hour. 
Yeah, seventy to seventy-five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's let's nerd out. Let's nerd out. Let's do our favorite favorite part. Oh yeah. <laughs> we need like a little music in here, like a little sweet guitar riff. Uh, I know, you have, that's about I I just did some stretches. Uh, like it is about the, game on. Yeah, that, we got the we got the board. I mean, I still think the history is amazing, but we got that out of the way. Let's talk physiology. Built for speed. I mean Yeah, this is where Chris, this is where I started the podcast yeah. preparing in the show notes because it's just I'm a had it's so funny. I never really thought to think about mm-hmm. it. I, I don't know why. I guess my animal physiology class back in college must have let me down. We talked about camels yeah. and how they can go without water, water yeah. and how polar bears can survive on their blubber. But I don't remember if we ever covered the speed of a cheetah. Mm-hmm. And so I got to learn a lot for this part of the episode. And it is stay tuned, my friends. Stay tuned. Well, and it's, you know, they they just slowly adapted over millions of years to be able to have this physiology to be as fast as they are. Like one of the things that I found really interesting is they just have really large nasal passages and that affects mm-hmm. the rest of the physiology of, of the, the head. So because they have these large noses that allows them to breathe while they move that fast, getting that critical oxygen to its mm-hmm. muscles to keep them going, right? They have to in- they have to inhale a lot of air. Because of that, their teeth are smaller because there's no room in their heads to have large teeth. So that in turn affects their ability to hunt and right, they have weak weaker jaws. Yeah, or fight. So, you know, they're flight, mm-hmm. they're more of a flight animal. They don't fight. Cheetahs rarely fight. They they run. See, that's why I love them. Yeah. I love the flight animals, right? Yeah. I love the hoofstock, yes, the yes. ungulates for the most part. <laughs> There's a few really amazingly tough hoofstock out there, like the sable antelope and the Arabian orcs that we'll, we'll still cover. And those guys, yeah, they don't, they come towards you. They don't move away from you when, yeah. <laughs> when they're scared. But for the most part, yeah, so maybe that's why I love cheetahs so much now, because they are, they're that they're not that typical aggressor and or fighter mm-hmm. like you think about potentially with the other big cats. Uh, if confronted, they prefer to, to, to leave. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just crazy. But P.S. Chris, in regards to their nasal passes, it's the largest in comparison to any other felid. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense though. I mean, it makes mm-hmm. sense. They book it, mm-hmm. you know. And the lungs are, so if we think, I'm a very visual person. And so if we think about the air coming in, right, so they can get more air in because of these nasal passages, it then, where does air go? In your lungs. Yeah, very yeah, good. No, very good. No, You're paying attention. I, You're still awake <laughs> over there. Uh, it's a beautiful day in California. It's good. I could. We just we just covered respiratory in my anatomy class, and so I could quiz you on the path of the airway all the way from the tracheal into the alveoli, which those are the little the actual where mm-hmm. the magic happens, mm-hmm. uh, where oxygen is. Passed, diffused into the red blood cells and or carbon on the way out, carbon dioxide is diffused back in the alveoli to be to be released when you breathe mm-hmm. out. But that's probably too dorky for this podcast. So I'll just say they have larger lungs, okay, and they their cardiovascular system allows them to pump a huge amount of blood. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, with this amount of blood, they also have an oversized, powerful heart, which makes sense. If you're going to pump more blood, you got to have a bigger pump, right? right? If you, you know, that's just physics, right? Um, and, and also to achieve basically these cats, cheetahs, not only are they the fastest runner, like that's 
obviously super fast, right? We all kind of grew up knowing that. What I couldn't get over was how fast they can accelerate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like boom. So that's different than just straight up running fast. It's the acceleration is what? Zero to 60 in three seconds or three strides. Yes, yes. Think about that for one second. Anybody that's ever been a runner or likes to jog for a pastime, zero to 60 in three seconds or three strides. That's just... Here's here's inc- a, a nerdy fact for you because, you know, we've covered this in, when I used to teach about horses, stride length, which is... Trying to get teach students like, you know, when these animals are moving so fast, how much can they cover in one stride? So that is like you put your right foot down, you're in air. And then when you put that right foot back down, how far did you cover? Right. So for horses, Mm -hmm. and we talked about like secretary, one of the greatest horses ever to live. You know, what was his stride length? What do you think a cheetah stride length is? You covered it. Right. Well, I know. Yeah, yeah. You know I mean, I know the I, I know the answer because yeah. I once I went down this rabbit yeah. hole, I'm like, holy macaroni. And so, yeah, a cheetah is about 25 feet. That's insane. That's more than a horse. That's more than a horse. Uh, well, a, hor- a horse average is 12 feet. Yeah. Now, the secretariat's was measured 24 feet, 11 right. inches right. While, while training, not even during, um, but while a training race. for okay. the Preakness. So maybe a little bit faster, but still for a for a thing that's a tenth the size of a horse, they can go seven meters in a in a complete stride and cover four strides per second. That's how fast they're it's moving. Just, yes, and it's just so it's just I mean, especially you and I are we're horse lovers, we're horse people. And so there's nothing I mean, one of my favorite things on earth is watching a horse run in a pasture mm-hmm. on its own free volition because it's just happy to be out in that pasture for the day or whatever. And our moms and baby horses when I was used to work down in Ocala. Yeah. Just ah, I love it, love it, love it. And so that's probably why I was mesmerized by watching all these cheetah mm-hmm. videos of them running and then the researchers breaking it down in slow motion. And we'll put some of them up on our show notes. But it is, it's just, it's just heroic, incredible. And uh, it gives me the goosebumps just thinking about it or talking about it. But what should be noted, I think, and I didn't realize this, Chris, is that, so they have, they have this big heart and big Mm -hmm. lungs and big nose and a lot of blood. And of course, when you run their heart can start, their heart rates can accelerate really quickly to achieve that speed, but they can only maintain that speed for like 600 yards or 550 meters because they basically almost overheat it. Their body is working so incredibly hard, just churning out the heat, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, to produce those muscle movement. We'll talk about muscles here in a second, but it's just incredible. And they get too hot and they have to basically they're hot and winded. I mean, think, I mean, I can't even imagine I run like, I don't know what, five miles an hour, (laughs) six miles an hour, seven on a good day. Right. Uh, and I'm about dying. So I couldn't imagine going that speed and they, they get hot and winded. And if they don't slow down that the brain damage could potentially occur. So, uh, Mm. and a fun fact that I read is when they do get their prey, they actually usually have to rest for a half an hour before they can actually consume it. 
to catch their, right. they're like me at the end of a race. Like people are passing me yeah. water and trying to pass me donuts. And I'm just like, yeah. get away from me. Leave I me alone. <laughs> but unfortunately, because of that, that half an hour window, if a bigger, if a big cat, if a lion comes in, a cheetah will lose its prey. It's because once again, it's more of a flight cat. It's not going to even try. It has no, it cannot, nope. it cannot stand up, stick up for itself. So it's another mm-hmm. reason why uh, and when we get to nutrition and stuff, it's just super fascinating. All the hardships they endure mm-hmm. to keep mm-hmm. up this amazing physiology, right? Mm-hmm. No. And then they, you know, you're talking about some of their adaptations. So they have a larger liver, larger heart, larger adrenal glands. So they can get that rapid explosion that you talked about. Bones are lighter and their spine. This is what I've always loved about cheetahs. They have that flexible spine that allows them to move. So when you see a cheetah running in slow motion, it, it, you can see that bend, you know, the higher end. Yeah. The front yeah. It, yeah. It, it moves. It really peaks up. Right. And as they gather themselves. And I read too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I read that if a horse, I mean, obviously I, I yeah. This is hard to speculate on, but if a horse had a spine like a cheetah, they could run 90 miles an hour. Is what I read. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Get in the lab, keep doing what you're doing while you mess know, with some genetics. Right? And this like, cheetah-like horse. <laughs> well, if, if you think about it, it makes because you brought the point too, like, wow, a cheetah they have a bigger stride than a horse, and they're not near, you know, they're not mm-hmm. as big. So I I know it's because a lot the spine is a huge part of it. Um, so as far as their ability to to get that, that, that range and that, um, that stride right. and that flex, that flexibility. And two, they're also, uh, their hips are able to pivot and their shoulders mm-hmm. are not attached to their collarbone, which enables for yeah. some more of this flexibility. Right. And then, the the tail, you know, is critical you know, in, in, in lions and other species that sprint to catch prey, but it's, it's a rudder. It helps balance you know, which is they use that. So when you see them in a turn, watch their tails and see how they use it to help them turn while they're following their prey. Right. And I was watching a lot of videos where they turn. It's just incredible. Oh my goodness. We'll put some on our show notes, but they can turn on a dime and the tail is very helpful in that. But the other part that's super helpful are those claws. With their claws, they have non-retractable, which maximizes the traction almost like... Mm -hmm a cleat with an athlete, right? Mm-hmm. They can get into the ground and sp- like basically spin on a dime. It's these videos. Mm-hmm. I said, I just was up last night. My mom, I'm visiting <laughs> with my mom right now and, and, and my family and I, and, and she's like, she's always teasing us too. Cause our generation's of course, always on the phone. And she's right. like, she's like, you guys are all going to be hunchback. And I'm like, yeah, somebody really needs to invent, invent like a, a way for me not to turn into a hunchback. But yeah. like, she got, I'm, like, I'm just watching video after video of cheetahs catching prey and chasing and running in slow motion. And she was cracking up. She's like, you are just so different. <laughs> Dorky. <laughs> <laughs> We've known that. She's known that for yeah. a lot oh, of she years. Loves it. She loves it. She, she loves her, her animal loving daughter. She knew, she knew I when know. she tried to get me dolls back in the day, her and my, uh, my beloved uh, grandmother, Marion, uh, they'd always yeah. like try to get me dolls and I would just cry. Like, here's your grandma giving you a gift. And I would just start <laughs> in front of them, like not politely crying. And they'd ask me why I'm crying. I'm like, I don't want your stinking doll. I want a stuffed animal or my little pony. Or something. <laughs> True story. I never had it, not even a cabbage patch. Kids. And those were very popular. I yeah. didn't want that. I didn't yeah. want a Barbie. I, and not only did I yeah. not want it, it, it offended me. <laughs> it was such a tomboy. 
John's uh, listening, right? Oh yeah, he knows. John learned. He learned. There's, he a, learned. there's a reason I have boys. Even my mom said that just this yeah. week, and she's like, "As much as I would love a little granddaughter, I don't know if I could picture you being a mom to girls." Uh, I'm like, I know. <laughs> They're out there shoveling horse poop. Yeah, yeah I'm like, like well, they would. Ha- they would have to be by default tomboys. So yes, but, yes, uh, yes. So, but no, let's let's talk about their muscles because yeah. that to me is. I mean, that's what I hypothesized. I was like, okay, there's something going yeah, on in their muscles okay. too. But lastly, getting back to the cheetah, the cheetah is way cooler than uh, mm-hmm. anything else. Uh, Barbies. <laughs> yeah, definitely way cooler than Barbies for the record. I think everybody <laughs> would agree on that. Uh, but besides, the, they're just built very aerodynamic too, just in general. They have a flattened rib cage and that small head and those long legs and all these other internal physiological adaptations that Chris and I have mentioned. But when I first started thinking about it, I initially was thought, okay, it has to be something in their muscles too, right? Like, cause there's just, they have all these other awesome ad- adaptations, but there has to be a difference in their muscles. And it turns out there is. And so researchers have shown more recently that the muscles in their hind leg, now I didn't, I couldn't figure out if it was like in their quads or more in their hammies, mm-hmm. like they're in their hamstrings, mm-hmm. uh, but in their upper hind leg, the ratio of muscle fibers is dramatically different. And what researchers have found is the muscles that are in that hind leg and upper quadrant have, are dominated by fast twitch fibers. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so in fast twitch fibers, we always talk about muscle physiology, just, just a brief, I won't bore you too much with details, except for of course my muscle physiologist friends would Get after me if I didn't go into too much detail. (laughs) Don't Uh, don't do it. Don't do it. No, just a little, just a little bit. But well, I think well, I think a lot of people care about muscles now in general for their own health because Mm -hmm. as we're learning more about how to be a healthy person and lose weight Mm -hmm. and keep the weight off, we've learned a lot more about how incorporating strength, so muscle building into your endurance activities, is so Mm -hmm. critical. Um, for long-term health of your bones even, and then also just for even losing weight because the more muscle you have, the more fat you burn when you're right. basically at rest. So people care about muscles. So really quick, there's – and the way that muscle physiologists break it up is into slow twitch and fast twitch muscles, which basically – have there's some differences in them and slow twitch are also called type one for those of you that heard about type one and fast twitch are called type two and the generic difference is basic that slow twitch muscles are more for endurance feats so my class always teach it's best for like cycling or marathon running or triathlons and that's that's how my genetics are i'm definitely dominated i mean nobody's studied me but I will, of course, upon, <laughs> upon upon my upon my demise, I will, of course, donate my body to science. And I, well, my hypothesis will be correct if they did a muscle biopsy to figure it out. Is that I? I mean, I'm just a slow twitch type of girl. Um, definitely suited for endurance sports. Where, and with that being said, the slow twitch are much more efficient in using oxygen, mm-hmm. but they have delayed muscle firing but they don't fatigue as easily. So that's why they're better for endurance types. Yeah. Marathon runners and yeah, things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so where fast twitch fibers don't really burn 
oxygen to create energy. And they have fewer blood vessels and mitochondria. And so therefore they have less myoglobin, myoglobin and they're like paler in color. And, but they fire super fast, like explosive. Those are your explosive body movements and they're great for sprinting, pole vaulting, CrossFit, just like, you know, type really, really quick movements. Well, let me jump in real quick. Let me jump in real quick. Just my own personal experience, right? So I played football in high school and college for a few years and everything we trained for all those years was sprints right? Exploding out of your stance. I played defensive line in college. So we, we just constantly worked on sprinting. You try to make me, and plus I was up to like 260 pounds. I'm six, five big guy. And I tried to run two miles. I thought I was going to die. I literally thought I was going to die because my muscles were trained for explosiveness. Right. Now, but, but you were in great shape. Isn't that crazy? I was in great shape. Yeah. I yeah. was in phenomenal shape. I wish I could be in that shape again. But <laughs> <laughs> when I went in the army after college, and then I had to run five miles. It took me years to be able to run because I really believed my muscle physiology was totally switched. I had trained for so many years to be explosive that when I went to running two to five to 10 miles, I dragged Angie. It took me years. And even then I had guys passing me up. Like I was not an endurance runner. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> well, it's I was in the best shape of my life when I was in the military, yeah. obviously. But but literally, I mean, I had a guy, he came out of West Point my size, and he would he he could I my two mile time was fourteen my best two mile time was fourteen minutes and twenty seconds. He was my size, he was doing it twelve minutes, no problem. No problem. Wow. Just wow. zipping by me. I was like, you yeah. bastard. Oh, excuse me, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So yeah, that's, I mean, the difference between, you know, in a human, from the human standpoint. But you bring up a very great point. And so you were more fast twitch. I was more slow twitch. However, (laughs) you can work on changing your muscle fiber type. So with, with, with time and with the right type of training, you can shift those ratios and that's what they're learning is obviously the more muscle you have, the better. I don't know if there's a ratio on which is the better type of muscle to have. I just do know that some of these strength training type of, um, these strength training type of movements are good for quote unquote, building more muscle, which overall too, as you age myself, it helps prevent injuries (laughs) and things like that. It helps you speed up your metabolism and prevent energy. And so, uh, a few of my friends that only run, I'm like, girls, ladies, come on, you've got to, you got to mix it up. You can't just run. You've got right. to incorporate some of the strength training in, or mm-hmm. uh, just mix it up because you're going to end up with, you know, some life altering injuries if you right. keep right. overusing the same muscle groups. So, but yeah, so these cheetahs have they were they evolved for speed and taught if we think about it. As far as genetic pressures and selection goes, Mm -hmm. besides these two extinction events that they lived through, because I mean, so the cheetahs, from what we know, the cheetahs definitely on its third life uh, and we need to protect it. Mm -hmm. It's our mission. Mm -hmm. It's our mission. I know it's our listeners mission, but they evolved this way besides the pressure of almost being extinct a couple of times, but The fastest cat that could catch the most prey would pass its genes along, right? Mm -hmm. If you're Mm -hmm. not fast, 
or not faster than the other guy mm-hmm. when there was a lot more cheetahs roaming around and there was probably mm-hmm. a lot more competition for food. That's who ends up breeding and that, and those genes get passed down the next generation. And mm-hmm. through this millennia over and over the speed, they just got selected for speed, incredible, right. incredible speed for a land mammal that most land mammals don't really compare. So it's really a unique, it's such a unique animal. I'm just, Chris, I'm just blown away by the cheetah yeah. and their physiology. They're, um, yeah, they're amazing. And Chris, the cool thing is with science is this was recently proven that it's all about your genes. We always say that, oh, it's in my genes or it's in her genes. And of course, we always, you and I dork about nature versus nurture and things like that. But mm-hmm, with a cheetah, mm-hmm. but with a cheetah, scientists have recently sequenced the genome of a cheetah mm-hmm. named Chewbacca, which... It's hilarious. And a shout out to all of our Star Wars fans, including the number one Star Wars fan, my husband, John. Yeah, (laughs) I'm number two. I'm 1A. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good. You'll have to come come back to Florida and uh, do Star Wars with us when it opens uh, at Disney. December. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the first month. Not the first month or even the first six months. Uh, Yikes. I can't deal with the crowds. But yes, eventually. But so they they sequenced Chewbacca's genome and they discovered that he has 11 genes that have mutated over multiple generations to give the, the big cat its speed. And it's, of course, genes that are evolved with the long legs, the aerodynamic skull, the large heart, and the retractable claws. And so this was an international team from a college that I cannot pronounce <laughs> out of <laughs> and, basically yeah. St. Petersburg uh, State University in Russia, in China. Mm-hmm. And the Cheetah Conservation Fund. So those groups all collaborated, and we'll talk more about the Cheetah Conservation Fund at the end of the podcast. But yeah, they basically figured out that the studies, there's five genes that regulate to heart and muscle contractions. And I can put them on the show notes. I won't read them all because they're just shortened anacronyms for something. But five that have to do with heart and muscle contra- uh, heart and muscle contractions. And then two genes were involved with stress response. So the adrenal gland that you had talked about with the enlarged adrenal glands. But this study also found, so, okay, that's the really cool part of the study that, I mean, they can trace the genes that actually mutated and help them run fast. But they also found out during this study, because now they have the genome sequenced of Chewbacca, that a cheetah has less than 5% of the genetic diversity than other wildcats. And it has a much lower genetic diversity than our domestic house cats. Mm -hmm. That was really quite striking for the researchers and really Mm -hmm. helped support this hypothesis about their low genetic diversity and how it is linked to some of these health problems that researchers are trying to figure out how to maximize their genetic diversity. So of course, any cheetahs that are um, under human care that are in AZA accredited facilities that or or accredited facilities throughout the world that are are being bred, they're mm-hmm. maximizing the genetic diversity or and or reducing the inbreeding as much as possible. Right. Yep. Now looking at what they eat, cheetahs have a pretty variety diet. You know, small antelope, obviously springbok and the uh, impala gazelles. So I know so th- all my all my favorites, uh, all yummy, mm-hmm. yummy, delicious steaks, mm-hmm. <laughs> raw, bloody. Uh, but they do eat, Ugh. 
you know, they, they can catch the young of like warthogs, kudu, oryx. Ooh, I wouldn't want to mess with an oryx. Wow. Uh, no, sable antelope. So, yeah. Or a they'll sable. eat. Heck yeah, no. Yeah. Or they'll eat some uh, birds and rabbits. Now, cheetahs are primarily diurnal, so they hunt, hunt in the early morning, late afternoon. Probably not the heat of the day, like Angie talked about. They get so tired. And they depend more on sight than smell. They like to climb up on like termite mounds or rock outcroppings to kind of scan the horizon. Then they'll creep, get into about 90 meters or 100 yards of their prey, and then boom, they're gone. They explode out of their stance, and their chase lasts only about 20 seconds. Right. Yeah. Well, that's all their heart. That's all. I mean, that's all they can take. That's all they can, the body can handle. Yeah. Now, what is interesting, Angie, compared to the other cats or big cats, half their hunts are successful. So that's pretty good. Right. Yeah. I mean, we just talked about mm-hmm. tigers a while back. You know, the, the five to 10% of their hunts are successful. We saw lions are 15 to 30 something percent, depending on where they live. So cheetahs about half the time are successful because they don't have these large teeth. They have to suffocate with the windpipe. But they lose a lot of their food. So about half that food is lost to other predators. So like you said, they have to sit around for 30 minutes to recover and they eat as quickly as they can because lions, hyenas, maybe even vultures can can drive them off. Now, the sad thing, Angie, I, I was interested in this and trying to find some data on cheetahs being killed by other predators, you know, as competitors. Mm-hmm. And the cubs can be killed by lions, hyenas, honey badgers come on honey oh, badgers, honey, I mean, badgers. honey badgers they don't care chris they don't, don't care <laughs> they don't care wild dogs and then this one angie secretary birds we gotta throw this one up on the list some point secretary birds absolutely will eat cheetah mm-hmm. cubs you bastards what? <laughs> it's like, don't eat those things they're the cutest they are the cutest uh, but so I thought, okay, lions would be the, the biggest threat. Like we saw in, in I think it was a uh, Disney's Africa cats episode and the mom's like leading the lions off. Cause she's worried about her cubs. I thought lions would be the biggest, you know, threat. And actually it's not true. Less than 6% of cheetah cub deaths are caused by lions. They actually get along pretty well. They, they don't really get into it too much. So some of these other species, probably hyenas, honey badgers. Why? I love you guys, but come on. Come on. Come on, honey badger. <laughs> it's like, I love you, honey badger. But now that that knocked you down a couple notches after I read yeah, that. Yeah, like, yes. You get you get knocked off, yeah, move down the line a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyways, really cool stuff. And I know you're itching to talk behavior. I know you're itching, itching, itching. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It uh, just because I read a whole four-page paper on it, and I'll, we can put it on the show notes. Nobody <laughs> okay. else will read it. It's classic. Yeah. It's from 1974. Yes. That's uh, what we call classic in the industry. It's the year my husband was born. Oops, I probably shouldn't say that on air. Uh, <laughs> he's a classic. Um, yes. But no, as you mentioned, they are a diurnal hunter, which means they'll hunt during the day more so, uh, early morning and late afternoon. And what's interesting about cheetahs similar to tigers is they are solitary hunters except for when they're living in a coalition. And so what happens as far as their social behavior goes is a cheetah in the wild is divided up into two groups, usually the family group. So the mom and her cubs and then males. 
And it's pretty unusual for a male cheetah to live alone. They usually live with two or three other males or this in this male coalition, which is usually brothers. So I can actually envision you with your brothers. Uh, you know, they form their own coalition. They go off. It's a small group. They will hunt together, sometimes for life. Uh, they'll claim their territories together, and it may overlap female territories. It may not. Um, and these related coalition members spend a lot of time in proximity. They're often seen grooming each other with their territories. This is, I think, a really critical, important part to understand as we talked about these smaller populations of fragmented cheetahs is that female cheetahs that were studied in the Serengeti roam something like 320 square miles or 829 square kilometers. That's huge, right? That's a lot. Uh, of space. And when young males leave their mom and the brotherly sibling coalition, they will go as far as about 300 miles away if they can to form their own territory. So these are, these are huge chunks of land that if they're not able to do that, or there's too many barriers or they're fenced in, or it's from one country to the next, or things like that, is really going to hinder their natural behavior. And so that's what researchers are probably are trying to understand too with these wild cheetahs, as far as how much land do they really need uh, in order to successfully produce offspring and have them live and be viable, and can their territories, their territories in the wild do overlap some, but like how much is too much, things like that. But the general take-home message for me was like, wow, they need a lot of space we should be working towards preserving what, what, what already is there and at least minimizing more habitat fragmentation or habitat destruction. And so we talk a lot about cat behavior as far as in the wild. They're actually probably one of the more boring species to see if you ever are on safari. Yeah. Because they're going to spend a lot of the day resting. Yep. And uh, they really, you know, the, the exciting videos of them hunting and chasing the, down their prey, I I. I think of those videographers probably from National Geographic or BBC and I'm like, how long did they have to wait to get that? Like right, the cats probably right. weren't doing much. Right. right. Uh, but it is pretty cute when they do interact with each other. They will often groom each other. Of course, the mother and her cubs or breeding pair. And the thing that's cool is with their communication is they do this totally different noise uh, that's called a yip or a yelp, mm -hmm. and then something called a chip or a chur. And it occurs for up to 20 minutes continuously until the cheetah's re re reunited with, with its partner, or the female will actually call, use these chips or chirps or yips or yelps to locate the cubs if they've wandered off. Let me pull up a vocalization of a cheetah calling. So beautiful. So beautiful for a cat. Yeah. I mean, just so beautiful. Yeah. So different, right? Um, so hopefully if you're still listening and with us, we'll wake you up with another fun fact that we've yeah. toyed with and touched on in other podcasts. But Chris, hopefully you've stuck with us this far because the cheetah is the only big cat that can. Purr? I was going to ask you. 
Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, yeah, there's several small cats, which we're going to, of course, get to on this podcast, such as the Lynx, the Serval, Bobcat, got to do Bobcat, uh, that can purr. But as far mm-hmm. as size and the uh, a big and being considered a big cat, the cheetah is the only one. And so mm-hmm. let me pull up a vocalization of... And before you get to that, I just want to say, Jay has the loudest purr I've ever heard of any cat. And I've had cats my entire life. Jay purrs like it echoes in the room. And it makes me, it warms my heart because it just oh, makes yes. me so happy. Okay, so now <laughs> take that and imagine this, yeah. ugh, just the beautiful face, the iconic yes. face of the cheetah with the small rounded ears and the lacrimal mm-hmm. black lines and mm-hmm. these polka dots. I mean, there's books, children's books written about cheetahs. Yeah. Uh, so picture that in your mind right now and check out this vocalization of a cheetah purring. Oh, I can only imagine a cheetah purring in my lap. Oh, (laughs) maybe one day if I get back to White Oak and get to work with them and I can hear that noise. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Speaking of White Oak, so let's talk about Repro, you know, how they breed in the wild and, you know, some of their strategies, things like that. Well, Chris, the general breakdown of cheetah reproduction is that cheetahs in general are promiscuous in nature. So really their only limitation for males is having accessibility to females in the wild. And males are only going to associate with females for breeding purposes. And sorry, Chris, the dad, the male cheetah does not. I'm sure. He's a deadbeat dad. He doesn't provide any paternal care. (laughs) No. And he'll mate with as many females as possible. And so, but they will breed throughout the year in the wild with the majority of copulations and for example, in Seren- in the Serengeti occurring during the wet season. And so when when it is the season and a female is an estrus, the male will perform the Fleming response, which we talked about in horses. But in cats, remember, we've all probably seen our house cat do it when they smell something weird. It's just more of an open mouth instead of like curling up their nose as we see in horses and other hoofstock. So they open their mouth to basically tape it, take in some deep smells of pheromones to check to see if the female's an estrus. They'll also sniff and lick genital areas, maybe a little bit of nipping. But what's really fun was I was went dove deep into the courtship behavior and we'll put this page, we'll put the, uh, the paper that I read on the show notes, this one from 1974. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those papers, these are people that are recording courtship behavior in cheetahs in the wild for the first time. Okay. About 40 years ago. And it's just a paper reads like a novel. And obviously I'm a behavior dork. So other people probably be bored after the first page, but I'll just, I'll just share with you some of the highlights because it really struck me. I learned a lot about cheetahs. So when they are, when the male does realize the female's an estrus and she's going to be a willing participant in the breeding Besides licking the sniffing of the genitals, they also will do some play fighting. And the female will often run from the male with her tail up or like in a curled over position. So she's like running away, but like not really, right? Not Obviously, we know she could probably outrun him or run fast. They're not really running fast. She just has her tail up position. And then when she, after a couple, a few hundred feet or something, not too far, she'll basically do one of two things. She'll either stop and just kind of stand still, basically indicating to him, hey, 
you know, I'm submissive. I'm, I'm interested in, in breeding or she'll do what's called a flop response. I don't know why that just makes me laugh. And this flop response is where she falls to her side in a gesture of submission of like, okay, mm-hmm. handsome, you know, let's, let's, yeah. uh, let's get to know each other better. And so I just love it. So I just love this flop response. So she does that. They copulate. And of course, in typical typical cat fashion, copulation is quick. And mm-hmm. and then after they breed, the male as he leaves, so so typical of a cat. She will <laughs> listen. Wait for it. I, I'm giggling hard right yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. She will swat him on the side of his head as he walks away. <laughs> Thanks, Ava. Thanks, yeah. jerk. <laughs> yeah. She swats him on the side of the head, but then she exhibits a post-breeding behavior called the after response. Okay. And the after response for a cheetah is rolling around on the ground from side to side. So Mm. she's, you know, she's obviously enjoying herself or she's happy that she just swatted the male or I don't, who knows what she's thinking, but I just think some of these behaviors are just super hilarious. And of course there's some, there's some grooming that goes on and all this ahead of time that I didn't really forgot to mention, but yeah, I just I couldn't get past. I'm like, see, this is why I read to page four because this is where this is this is the funny, amazing stuff that animals do that we've all seen our cat do that squat, that annoying, like not super mad, probably right. not trying to hurt you, just a right. little like I gotta hit the last the last whack at you. And so, anyways, but super funny cheetah behavior, uh, courtship behavior. But when a female, it's important to note too that uh, a cheetah, like all the other big cats, or or your little domestic house cat cat is an induced ovulator. So uh, she doesn't ovulate and she needs to be bred to actually ovulate. And a female cheetah doesn't reach her first cycle until she's 13 to 16 months, but probably is not going to breed until she's close to two years old. And so when a female is receptive to a male, uh, their estrus is going to last or they might be receptive from one to 14 days, depending on if they're under human care or in the wild. And there's, like I said, there's lim- some ev- limited evidence of seasonal breeding, uh, but it depends on where they live and a lot of these other factors that have made cheetah breeding in um, under human care really difficult for a lot of institutes. And I know that uh, they have a lot of this courtship behavior and there's a lot of territorial of like who's in what coalition and who's and what's going on. And so I know, I remember when we were at White Oak, they were explained to us some of the magical and amazing and research ways that they were able to mimic a lot of these wild behaviors in order to get the cheetahs to have interest in each other and to get the females mm-hmm. in estrus and things like that. And they just need to be applauded. And they're, I mean, people from all over the world go to workshops there to learn. And of course, part of their mission too is to help educate other Preserve people. Them. They're yeah. not trying, yeah, they're not trying to like hold their secret measures, but it's, I mean, I remember there was like a lot of exhibit switching to get the males, a little uh, females interested in the male and the male interested in the female and all of this, if you will, for the more, more or less rigmarole to, to help, um, induce them and, and, um, excite them and things like that. And so it's just, they do amazing work there. Uh, and yeah. when female, and then when a female is pregnant in the wild, um, she's going to, uh, gestation is going to be, uh, 90 to 95 days. The young are born, uh, 
obviously very small. Their eyes open four to 11 days after birth. They start walking around 12 to 13, two weeks after their eyes open. And they're, cause they're only about uh, 250 to 300 grams. So that's itty bitty yeah. when you're born yeah, they're tiny. and a little bit bigger when they're under human care. And a litter of cubs is going to be up to eight. Uh, but in the wild, the average is uh, 2.6. Yeah. And infant cubs, as you mentioned in the very introduction of this podcast, pa- podcast are just ridiculously adorable. They have this thick gray mane on the nape and their shoulder area that functions as camouflage from predators. It goes away after about three months, but it's just charming. We'll put some pictures on our show notes. If you've yeah. never seen a cheetah cub, you haven't lived. They, no. they are they just are so even like cats at all. They yeah. are, oh my gosh, they're so adorable with their yeah. big fluffy face. And so, but yeah, mom's a super mom. Um, I think all carnivore moms have to be. They mm-hmm. uh, carry their cubs to different hiding places. They are with their cubs uh, until uh, until they're about 15 to 17 months old. Mm. Um, They have to teach their cubs how to to hunt and Mm -hmm. be a predator and what that means. And therefore, she has to make successful kills every day in order to feed her and her potential three, four, five, six cubs she has suckling from her and where when it's just her by herself, she only has to make a kill every two to five days. So when we talk about parental maternal investment, it is tough. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's very tough. So one thing you mentioned, you know, we, we talked about cats and the penis of the male has those spines Right. Mm-hmm. So that so that same with the cheetahs and that helps, we think, induce ovulation as it rakes the vagina as it comes out. I think that's why she swats them. She's like, you SOB, that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> she turns around and smacks them here. You can feel what I'm feeling, you know. <laughs> so um, but just cats in general are just incredible, you know, how their bodies and physiology works. Now, like we mentioned with, with conservation, we listed the numbers already. Southern Africa is really their stronghold with over 4,000, 6,800 adults in the wild total, which is nothing, absolutely nothing. So let's talk about the cheetah conservation organization that you selected. Yes, Chris. I'm really excited about this week's conservation organization. I selected the Cheetah Conservation Fund. It can be found at cheetah.org. Just type in the Cheetah Conservation Fund and it should come right up. But it's a nonprofit-based organization based out of Namibia, which is a gorgeous country that my friend Allison has traveled to a lot and I haven't, mm-hmm. so it's on my bucket list for sure. But the Cheetah Conservation Fund is an amazing conglomerate of international affiliates that focus on basically raising awareness and support to cha- saving the cheetah across its entire range. So not just in Namibia or anything like that. And the Cheetah Conservation Fund was founded by Dr. Lori Marker. And if you'd like to learn more specifics about the Cheetah Conservation Fund, there was an amazing interview that our buddy Corbin did um, on his podcast, mm-hmm. Animals to the Max. If you haven't checked it out, check out Animals to the Max. Great interviews. Corbin is hilarious yes. and passionate yeah. and educated. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's a close friend. Yeah. Good friend now. Yeah. yeah. He's a great friend of ours. And so, so episode 59, number 59, 
he interviews Dr. Lori Marker all about the Cheetah Conservation Fund. So maybe we can even link it on our show notes so you can check that out. And he did the work for us. We don't have to interview her, uh, although I would still love to. Oh my gosh, Chris, this is one of those organizations when I was on their website that I, yeah. I'm like, okay, they're hiring. Like I want to work for them. I, hands down, <laughs> hire me, Dr. Yeah. Lori Marker. They yeah. are amazing. They, of course, focus on the big areas of conservation. So- mm. They focus on the three main threats to cheetah population in Africa, which is human-wild conflict, illegal pet trade, and habitat loss. And and they, of course, do amazing research. Uh, we'll put it on our show notes, but it's just incredible. I mean, they are trying to figure out the range, the genetic diversity, just really cool science stuff. I want them to hire me. Uh, and they do a lot of education for the uh, local people around the parks mm-hmm. to get them excited about cheetahs and they, but they do another really cool thing called, uh, they have a livestock guarding dog program where they breed Anatolian shepherds or Kangle dogs that they breed them and they help train them up and they give them to Namibian farmers as puppies to help these dogs then protect their farm animals from predators. So it helps reduce this, this human wildlife conflict. And so that's just such a, what a, this is these are the conservation heroes that I just keep blowing my mind with their right. uh, ingenuity and their workarounds. Like they've got these workarounds for mm-hmm. everything and that's why we need to give them our time, energy, support, money if you can because mm-hmm. they are coming up with cool things that I would never even think is possible to help save animals or in this instance the cheetah. Mm-hmm. They also mm-hmm. do conservancies, which that was a new concept to me. So what that is is they basically partner with land management areas to help let the people own the wildlife. And I'm not going to do it justice with how Mm -hmm. I explain it, but it's another kind of radical and awesome concept of how to get local people more invested in this land and the animals that inhabit the land. I'll just jump in real quick. Nepal is doing an amazing job with that, with tigers, which mm-hmm. Sonarto talked about with you, and mm-hmm. also snow leopards. They Nepal is one of the countries in the world that's doing this right. And we need to focus more on them too. So taking the lessons we learned from Nepal, applying it to cheetahs and lions, that's amazing. Amazing work. Right. Well, and it sounds like Namibia is like, that's what I'm saying. This group is just, I right want them to work for yeah. them. They are on the cutting edge of philanthropy, technology, research, education. I mean, they're doing it. They're like going hardcore. So I, uh, um, I really highly recommend listening to the interview with Corbin Max and Dr. Lori Marker, but cause other do other cool things. They're, um, they're doing something called eco labeling. So f- they're getting farmers to label their beef predator friendly and they're calling mm-hmm. it cheetah country beef. So it's helping create this economic push for farmers to be more uh, accountable to not ha- ha- killing off cheetahs. Uh, like I said, I could do a whole I could do a whole hour on how awesome know, the Cheetah Conservation yeah. Fund is. Yeah. Check them out. Well, that's a good segue into conservation tips. And you know, unfortunately, cheetahs are slaughtered by sport hunters as trophies. They get their skins and they're just adorned their walls, you know, from, they call it the rich and thoughtless, which is very true. Other concerning is cheetahs are, are stolen from the wilds of Africa. 
to satisfy the pet trade. So wealthy collectors, primarily in the Middle East, this is a trend now where they walk with cheetahs on a leash. It's like a, a pet for them. So, you know, this is unacceptable. It's, it's totally my unacceptable. Blood boil. Yeah. Oh, so what we, it. you know, so on social media, I'm seeing this quite a lot with people with their pets, animals. And if you see somebody with a pet cheetah, speak out against it. And we, we can't be afraid to voice our concerns. I would just say, always use facts and data. Talk about how there's less than, you know, what, 7,000 cheetahs left in the wild. That animal was stolen from the wilds of its home. You know, mother was probably killed, you know, to satisfy somebody's itch to have a cool pet. It's, it's so wrong. And social media is very powerful these days. So if you see it, you know, speak out against it or link it to us and we'll take care of it because that should not be acceptable. It is not cool to have a cheetah as a pet, period, period. Amen. Yes. Period. All right. So finally, Angie, this has been a long one, but a good one. <laughs> we had to do them justice. <laughs> so is cheetah or are cheetahs the fastest animal on earth? What say you? On land? Definitely. Yes. On land. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So they can reach 70 miles per hour. Do you know what the second is? The second fastest on land? It's kind of near, kind of near us. Uh, oh, yes, I do. I do. Um, oh, mom yeah. brain, mom brain, so much in my brain. Mom brain, mom brain. It it's, is a hoofstock in North America. Yes. It Hold on, my brain. It is not a springbok. A, uh, uh, it has an S in its name. Oh, gosh. You, it's uh, an antelope that pronghorn, lives in the Americas. Pronghorn, pronghorn. Yes. Okay. 60 I don't know where miles per from. hour. Yeah. Yeah. Just under 100 kilometers per hour. Now, this one was interesting. The third fastest mammal is the blue wildebeest. At 50 oh, miles per hour. I, I didn't know that. that. Yeah. No. Uh-uh. 80 kilometers per hour. Now, in the oceans, Angie, is there something that can swim faster than a cheetah? What do you think? Wow, Chris. I don't know. Um, a, I don't think a dolphin can get 70 miles an hour. No, 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 um, no, no, no. I'm trying to think what's streamlined. What's that? Like yeah, a, all of them are. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think, tell you. Yeah, good point. Duh. Yeah. Mom brain. Okay. So okay, I get now, that. Now, no, no, okay. So cheetahs are still faster, 70 okay. miles per hour, but right behind it is a sailfish. Oh, okay. Can, yeah. Can swim 68 miles per hour or 110 kilometers per hour. Now, in the air, are cheetahs still faster? Ooh, what do you think of all animals on earth? No, I think. Yeah, you're right. I think think something, I don't know what it is. I think in the air, something dives faster. It does. And it flies. And you interviewed them from this fund. The the members way back. Yes. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. 200 miles per hour or 320 kilometers per hour in a steep dive. That's nuts. Holy. That's nuts. It's insane. The top four fastest animals on earth are all birds. Yeah. The top four are all birds. So you have not awesome too. Yeah. So the peregrine falcons, the the champ of the fastest animal on earth, the white throated needle tail, the frigate bird and the spur wing goose are right behind them. As far as flight speeds. That's insane. It's insane. I love insane. Animals. 
And we have to cover yes. one of those birds soon. That's we awesome. will. We will. We will. So thank you to our subscribers. You place your vote. Are, place your vote. What do you yes. want to hear from us next? We just yes. picked cheetahs out of a hat. Uh, yeah. But we'd like to hear. We would like to to um, dedicate these to our listeners and to what you vote yeah. and what you're wanting. What kind of content that you yes. are fascinated by. And you're going to be critical to our growth, you know, especially the early on Patreon subscribers that we're going to keep building this movement. Knowledge is power and we're going to change global consciousness. We are going to do it. We are going to do it. Angie and I, with your help, are going to do it. So thank you. You're our heroes. We love you. And we'll talk to you next time. All right. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.